Higher Voltage is brought to you by Salesforce. Today's higher ed marketers face new challenges and must expand beyond traditional tactics to engage their many audiences. Learn how Salesforce empowers institutions of all sizes to unify first-party data, build and measure targeted campaigns, and deliver personalized messaging across channels. Visit salesforce.org to learn about how Salesforce can help your college or university achieve its goals. Hello, and welcome to Higher Voltage, a podcast about higher education that explores what's working, what's not, and what needs to change in higher ed marketing and administration. I'm your host, Kevin Tyler. Very excited for today's conversation with Kevin McClure. Kevin has been writing about the future of higher ed workforce for a couple of years now. We've invited him to join us for a conversation about what he thinks the future of work looks like on college campuses moving forward. We'll talk about the pandemic, the things that happened before the pandemic, and how institutions can move forward with creating an environment for success for their staff and faculty. I'm glad to have you here, Kevin. We will post the articles that we're using as reference points on our episode page. We'll have another reminder for our listeners at the end of this episode. But before we dig into the conversation, I'm hoping you might be able to give us just some background about where you come from, what you're doing, the institution you work at, and uh, how you got into this thinking about the future of work. All right, definitely. Well, thank you so much for for having me and just glad to, to be able to continue this conversation. I have been working professionally in higher education for over 10 years. Started my career at the University of Maryland in a staff role. After doing my doctoral work, entered into a, a faculty position. And so I teach and research and speak about, write about issues connected to higher education. Most of the stuff that I have worked on focuses on issues of leadership, communication, institutional management, and finance. So obviously the types of stuff that get students really jazzed up. <laughs> and uh, you know, usually I have to like convince them why taking my courses are important. And I have focused for, for many, many years now on regional public universities and other broad access institutions. Interestingly, you know, prior to even some of the work that I've done on regional public universities as kind of a precursor to some of the stuff that I'm doing now, I did a lot of research focused on privatization in higher education, and a big strain of that work was connected to basically questions of management, managerial authority, and labor conflict, kind of conflict within the organizational hierarchy of higher education. And so I did some research on that, and at a very early point, actually did some speaking on kind of what faculty looks like under institutions that are undergoing changes related to privatization. So I didn't know it at the time, but that prior work has come in handy as I've entered into this new phase of my career, which is really shifted in unexpected ways and started really with the pandemic where I have focused intensively on the higher education workplace and have been writing about burnout, demoralization, understaffing, retention issues, and benefit from being able to pull from kind of that previous background in organizational theory and finance and management. But I think what's a little bit different about this as, as a topic for me and as kind of a new era in my career is that, first of all, I've done most of my writing and most of my communicating about this through largely public channels. So columns in the Chronicle of Higher Education and EdSurge, 
keynote addresses, speaking with campuses as part of events, podcasts like this. And so that's been one kind of unique dimension of it. But it's also a much more personal topic, to be honest with you. So I came about this because I reached a point in the pandemic where I was experiencing burnout. I realized that episode of burnout was probably my third or fourth go with it. And even after that first round of burnout, I have since had some moments of burnout. And through those experiences, as somebody with young children, parenting through the pandemic, trying to still do everything and keep up with everything, you know, perform at levels expected of me in higher education, like a lot of folks just prompted some reevaluation of work in my life and prompted some questions around how we operate in higher ed, how we do things, how we structure our work. I have been fortunate to be able to learn from people who have been writing and, and studying this for a long period of time, including in, in higher ed, kind of piecing some things together and trying to shed light on issues that I think are really, really important. That's excellent. There's been countless articles about the environments uh, in which staff and faculty are working on college campuses and the burnout and the demoralization can come from different places or look differently depending on either what department or what your skill set is, what you're teaching. Obviously, there are staff and faculty members who have left everyone's heard about the great resignation and uh, in higher ed specifically have left because of racial tension issues, demoralization, overworking, doing too much, not enough people to help out with things. What was your, if you don't mind sharing, what was your burnout looking like or what was it due to? And at this point, are you past that or are you still feeling that? Yeah, it's a great question. So for me, it actually checked a number of the boxes that they kind of use to characterize burnout. So Burnout traditionally is characterized as feeling exhausted or just kind of depleted on a regular basis. It's also characterized by feeling a certain level of cynicism towards work, or there may be a new opportunity, a new challenge that arises, but you just don't have the bandwidth to be able to take that on. So for me, it was very much along those lines. What happened was... In February of 2020, I was taking on projects and planning for spring, planning for summer without any sense of what was coming. And at that time, my kids were one in three. And so, you know, I was already kind of operating at a level of not a ton of sleep and just barely figuring out how to make everything work and how to accomplish everything in a given day. So, you know, fast forward just a bit. The pandemic really kind of enters the picture and we go into kind of quarantine mode. And so my wife and I are at home with our kids and we are splitting the days half and half, attempting to try to get everything that we needed to get done with it, about half of the work. And so it meant that we were often working evenings as a way of, you know, trying to get everything accomplished. And at that point in time, I didn't have the insight to be able to say, I need to dial back on some of these things. It's just not going to happen. And part of that was because we kind of thought that if we went into lockdown, we were going to arrive at a place shortly after that where we would kind of get back to normal, like that would fix it. And so 
I didn't stop and say, I shouldn't do that writing project in the future, or I should say no to this new opportunity that popped up. The other dimension of this is at that point in time, there was a lot of hunger for people to explain what was going on in higher education. They wanted to get a sense of what does, what does closure mean? What are the ramifications of this decision? How should we be thinking about fall? So there were a handful of us that, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about higher education as organizations and how they should be organized and managed. And we were getting calls and emails constantly from people asking us, what should we expect or what does this mean? And so I said a lot, a yes to a lot of those opportunities on, on top of everything else. And so I got to May and we were thinking about graduation ceremonies for our students. One of my colleagues said, hey, we should do something kind of creative and fun and special to honor our students, even though we can't do our normal graduation ceremony. And I just had nothing left in the tank. I, there was no creativity. I didn't want to do anything more than just what was required to get to the finish line. And so my response at the time was, you know, do we do we have to do that? Are we, are we sure we have to do that? And so I, for me, that was a signal that there was something off because typically under normal circumstances, when I'm feeling good, I would have said, yes, that sounds great. Like, let's brainstorm some ideas. So i kind of went into a period then over the summer of like hibernation. Once I got through that semester, I had the benefit of things slowing down in my schedule and I taught less and had fewer meetings. And so I had an opportunity during that time to catch my breath. We certainly were not out of the pandemic, but I was able to take advantage of that time to learn a little bit about what had happened, what may have caused it. And so the upside is that as I start lurching in that direction again in the future, I'm much more readily able to identify what's going on. I have a better vocabulary to be able to kind of express what's happening and to kind of make changes before I go get as far down the path as I did in that particular instance. As I've been learning about this and reading about it and talking about it with other people, part of what motivated me to start writing about this was not necessarily that I had this personal experience, but rather that in telling other people about it, I learned that there are so, so, so many other people that have had similar experiences in higher ed. And so that was really kind of what prompted me to start saying, there's a bigger conversation that needs to happen here. It's really, you know, yes, for me, the, the personal aspect of it is what pushed me to finally start moving in that direction and asking those questions. But the truth of the matter is, is that there's people who've been experiencing burnout prior to the pandemic. Right. And there are people who've been asking really critical, important questions about working conditions in higher ed long before the pandemic. And right. so I've been a participant in this conversation recently, but in a lot of ways, it's been, it's been going on for a long time. I'm super curious. I work in higher ed marketing and have done that for a number of years. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on this like very public conversation about demoralization and burnout in higher ed and what that does, what that publicity does to the brand of higher ed as an idea, but also like individual brands of higher ed, like campuses. Do you think that there is an impact is it becoming next to impossible to hire people in this context of demoralization and burnout that we keep hearing about? Yeah, this is something that I have some tension around because 
on the one hand, I think this is a really important conversation. We should be having it, but but it does raise that concern around by having this conversation, by putting it out there, by making it so public, do we inadvertently make it so that people are more likely to leave or it becomes harder to bring people in? Where I've kind of landed on that, by the way, is that the fact that I'm having a conversation or writing a piece is not going to be the thing that that pushes someone to leave their job. <laughs> so fair. Fair. that's fair. At the end of the day, you know, we are talking about typically much bigger concerns that people have. That is really the push factor or, you know, something much more material. That's a pull factor. That's that's really driving that conversation. But but I do think it's the case that the fact that this has become such a prominent public discussion has prompted people in higher ed who are working in higher ed to stop and say, you know what, you're right. You know, there is something going on here. I have felt it for a long period of time, but I wasn't exactly sure kind of what to do with that feeling. Or maybe I wasn't sure if I was alone in feeling that. And now I realize that there are a lot of other people who are in this position. And that may, having some additional awareness and understanding and a sense of connectedness to other people who have also been struggling may empower them to start looking into opportunities in a way that they wouldn't have done previously and to maybe ultimately decide, you know what, I'm going to start looking at something else and leaving. There is an open question amongst those of us that are educating future higher ed professionals around whether the, not necessarily this conversation around burnout demoralization is preventing or, or giving people reason not to come into our programs and pursue the field but rather whether the experience of higher education itself for our students was not as positive as it once was. And for that reason, they may say, I'm not sure that I wanna go into this as a career, whereas they may have had more positive experiences and mentorship and relationships with staff and faculty that may have given them more reason to say, I'd like to pursue this as, as a career. So there is, I, I think, certainly some concern around whether we are, it's not just concern. I mean, there's, there is some factual, uh, we have a real problem, I think, right now around attracting people to the field. And similarly, I think a real problem around retaining people. Ultimately, I think having these discussions, figuring out the root cause of the problems and addressing those root causes is going to help to ensure that we are a place that is going to attract people into the future. And so I think it's kind of necessary that we, we have these conversations. The question of how this may play out for like a, a particular institution is an interesting one. Let's take the example of an institution that has had a high level of turnover, for example. I don't know that the fact that they are not retaining people or not attracting as many applicants is going to have huge ramifications for their reputation as an institution or the institutional brand, at least from the perspective of like prospective students or maybe that particular audience. Because frankly, you know, I think a lot of these conversations that we're happening are happening in ways and through channels that the average family and student are just probably not going to catch wind of and see. Right. But I do have an open question something that I have been wondering about, surely students on campus are aware of and notice when there's an office that's thin staffed or when services have been cut 
or there's a facility that would typically be open that's closed because they don't have people to work there. It would be interesting to see if there comes a time where there's been an institution that's struggling. You know, there've been stories of like Indiana University, for example, had some problems around being able to operate dining facilities, Michigan State University, similarly. If that type of thing would lead students, current students to, to be talking and in conversation with family and friends, and then down the line, prospective students say, there's something up there, you know, there this institution is struggling, we on the other side of the curtain working at the institution can say, yeah, the problem is that working conditions aren't great or the pay isn't great. We're not able to keep people. We're not able to hire enough people to be able to deliver on the promise that has been offered up. So like I said, that's this is kind of me speculating. I, I haven't seen anything concrete that would suggest that there are students who are like, I'm going to steer clear of that place because sure. I hear that they're like a burnout factory for faculty and staff, but there is some potential, I guess, for there to be some connections there. Yeah. And I think the the reputation piece, and I agree with you, it's not so much prospective students and their families as much as it might be new talent that they're trying to bring in. And I think that when a person leaves an institution for a reason, like there's one of me and way too much work, and that's the, the root of the burnout. Replacing the person isn't necessarily the answer. It's like building the team that the person who you replace needed in the first place. And just like swapping bodies doesn't seem to be the solution. And so it's more about if we are having such a hard time inviting ambassadors for our brand and finding ambassadors, hiring these people to, you know, to be evangelists of this brand. I just feel like it would be really, really hard to build a, a team in like, say, a marketing space because of the structure within which these folks are working in. But I totally agree. In terms of attracting talent, I think you are 100% right in the sense that higher ed is a small world. And when we even get down to the level of particular functional areas, it gets even smaller. Totally. If you got somebody that leaves and they say, listen, this place was rough and this job is intense and they want to restructure it and add even more to it. And we're having difficulty hiring at lower levels. You know, that type of information, it, it has a way of getting out there. And I do think that there have been some places in some searches where they have had difficulty filling positions because they want to just replace. They want yeah. to replenish and replace without changing anything connected to that position because in the past, they've been able to do that. They've been able to find somebody who is willing to step into that role. I think that at least at, at the moment, workers have felt that they have sufficient agency and power within the labor market to say, I'm not going to accept that. I'm yeah. not going to step into a role that I have heard is going to be a nightmare. I don't want that for myself. I'm going to wait for a better opportunity. And by the way, I'm aware of the fact that there are places adjacent to higher education that might be willing to hire me and pay me more that don't have these issues. And so I might be more interested in looking into those as opposed to what this institution is offering, which seems like it's just kind of the same old, you know, it's, it's right. more of, of the same. So I think you were correct there 100% that when it comes to being able to attract kind of the next generation of talent or the next generation of leaders, we ought to be more concerned 
And it would not surprise me to learn that there have been positions where it has been a struggle to fill them when that wasn't the case in the past, because people that are eligible for that type of position, they know they are knowledgeable about what the experience was of the person who was in it previously. And they say, no, thank you. Right. I think it's important to note here that people are calling this all types of different things, the great resignation and other uh, terms thrown around about this. But this is not something that is specific to higher ed. It's happening in other industries. I think that's an important point to, to raise, although this is a higher ed marketing podcast. And so we're going to talk about it in the context of higher ed. But I just wanted to make that point because, you know, sometimes we get emails from people about things. I had a really interesting exchange with somebody on Twitter that was actually pushing me and other folks that are writing about, you know, the higher education workplace to do a better job, actually, of being less insular and realizing that this space of higher education as a workplace is not as special or unique as we sometimes think that it is. Some of the problems that we're talking about are not unique to higher ed. They exist elsewhere. Some of the solutions that we should be implementing have been implemented with success elsewhere. The fact that we in higher ed can't figure this out is a function of our insularity. And so, you know, I think there is some, some truth to that. So, yes, as we're talking about the great resignation in higher ed, one of the reasons why this has been a real issue in higher ed is because there are people who are leaving jobs in other sectors or shifting jobs in other sectors that are creating new opportunities for people in higher ed to step into those roles. And so I still think that the great resignation as a concept fits in many ways, but in a lot of ways, what we're seeing is just a lot of movement. and a lot of turbulence and uncertainty. And it has meant that some of the operating assumptions around the labor force that leaders have made don't apply as cleanly anymore as they once did. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think is really important as we're kind of clarifying our language is there is not a singular higher education workplace or higher education workforce. So we've got incredibly different institutions with very different conditions and resources. And we've got incredible diversity of position types and power differentials within institutions, within organizations. And so you've got faculty that enjoy privileges and agency and and decision-making over their jobs that is not extended to staff. You've got folks that are in hourly roles that are maybe working at state institutions that are governed by a set of policies that make some workplace changes rather difficult to explore. You know, we sometimes use these general categories as a way of trying to make sense of things. But the truth is that there is a lot of complexity at play here. Definitely. Definitely. I know you've done a lot of research in this space, and I'm wondering if there are any interesting insights or perspectives that you can glean from some of the the data that you've looked at? I'm curious if more folks are leaving from specific skill sets or departments or race or like, are there any, is there any sort of organization or any sort of trend that you can identify in what you've researched? Unfortunately, we don't have great data that helps us to really understand what's going on within the higher education workplace or even the higher education workforce. And most of the data that we do have available doesn't get at the level of granularity that helps us to see some of those types of trends and and patterns, at least across kind of higher education as, as a whole. Sure. What I do have basically is just a lot of information and stories that kind of come to me 
by virtue of the fact that I've been talking about this and writing about it, and some of the data that I have seen within my own state system, what I have gleaned from that is that there is, in fact, levels of people that are switching jobs or leaving jobs in higher education that we haven't seen before. Of course, this conversation around the workplace is happening at the same time that we are having conversations about the extent to which higher education is truly practicing some of the espoused values around diversity, equity, inclusion. And of course, we are also well aware of long-running problems in higher education connected to racism, connected to discrimination or bias against mothers. And so from that and from what people have told me in DMs and Zoom conversations and emails is that there are people that have felt like they have been pushed out of higher education. And a lot of those are people of color. They are people that have felt stuck in their jobs because they have been passed over for advancement. They are parents or other caregivers. They are people with disabilities who feel that the workplace has been set up to allow for the success or to encourage the success of people that can meet a certain set of norms that were never designed to accommodate the way that they think or the way that they work. I think we may not yet have the numerical data to help us really see some of those patterns, but there is enough research out there that we can piece together who has, I think, been hurt the most in the higher education workplace and who has suffered the most through the pandemic as well. What that means for me is, yes, having that, that data would be wonderful and is really, really important. And I hope that we, we get at it. And I'm, I'm doing some work that will hopefully help us get at some of that, at least within kind of a sample of, of institutions. But we know enough to understand that there's a problem. We know enough at this point to understand where we ought to be targeting our attention most. So who are the people whose ability to thrive in higher education has been most curtailed? Mm-hmm. And so... Given what we know already, I think we have enough to say that there's a problem that we ought to be acting on. Yeah, yeah. I like that we've spent some time talking about what people have been talking about for a minute, right? This great resignation, the demoralization, the burnout, even throughout the pandemic, before the pandemic. But now we start to hear these questions around what the future of work looks like, especially on college campuses. And I really, really love the piece that you wrote about, um, and I'm just going to say the University of Iowa, because you, you've you added a caveat about all the people you know who went to the University of Iowa. And so it wasn't a, you weren't trying to be, throw shade at the institution, but there were some things that you pointed out from the strategic plan that I just found to be really interesting and things that I think about as well. And one of those things was about the idea of flexible work and how they talk about it in, in that strategic plan. And we'll have a link to this article on the episode page. In a nutshell, it wasn't exactly a flexible work kind of offer, right? And so when we think about what higher ed is tasked to do, and that is to prepare people for the future of work, it also feels like higher ed is so hesitant to embrace the future of work. And I'm curious about what that, like why that might be. Yeah, it's a a great question. It is incredibly frustrating to be involved with organizations that are entirely organized around learning and human development and growth. And to realize that there is so much resistance to undergoing processes that would help us learn from the pandemic and what we experienced. And that 
we have done a really poor job of investing in the growth and development of our own people. I think my biggest fear, and so far I have not seen much to indicate that this fear is unfounded, is that every semester that we continue on, we are going to get closer and closer to reverting exactly back to where things were in January of 2020, which is to say that all of the change that we experienced, all of the experimentation, the things that we have learned over the past couple of years are going to be lost because institutions are, I think, in a lot of ways structured and hardwired to revert back to a particular norm and are uncomfortable institutionalizing a set of changes even when it, it seems clear that they are beneficial to faculty and staff, but are enough of a, of a radical idea to just run against the grain a little bit. And so part of the reason why the, the University of Iowa plan stood out to me is that it suggested to me that we may see a fair amount of rhetoric around the future of, of work and we're gonna embrace innovation and we think flexibility is great, but by the way, our number one priority is providing a residential college experience for students. And that means that we expect people are going to be physically here. So there'll be some workplace flexibility, maybe, kind of depends on who you are and where you're at and you've got to get approval for it. It kind of felt like we were kind of rhetorically jumping through these hoops to make it seem like this was the future of work, except it really wasn't. It was the it was it was the same, it was the same workplace that people have were were probably accustomed to. And unfortunately I just I haven't seen that many examples of institutions that I feel like are really innovating and taking a chance on something different. Part of the reason why that confuses me so much is that there's like a really good opportunity here to be an institution and put yourself on the map for being this place where we really value our employees. We pour into them. We believe in human growth and development. And by the way, we can show that in terms of how we understand our employees and what they're seeking. We have groups dedicated to studying the workplace, collecting data on it, developing new initiatives. And through that data, we understand that flexibility is important. So here's what we're doing. I guess I just find it surprising that there isn't an institution that says, hey, there's a strategy here for us to pursue that helps to differentiate us from other places and could have some really positive outcomes for the organization and for students. And instead, I just feel like what we're doing is, as time goes on, walking backwards and kind of just hitting the rewind button instead of really learning from some of the lessons from the pandemic and, and putting in place permanent changes that are good. I could not agree with you more on that. I think it's interesting that we already have the processes to attract students in much the same way that we could use 
to attract faculty and staff. The ways that higher ed institutions talk about how they serve students, how they, the, all the services, what we offer, what you get out of that. Those are all messages that staff and faculty could also benefit from, right? Like, this is what we stand for. This is who we are. This is who we're looking for. And that's the power of a brand, right? The power of a brand is not just the, the recruitment piece, but it's also students. It's also how you understand who's going to be a best fit as a leader, as a staff member, as whoever it is. And it just seems to be like a really a missed opportunity for some really compelling messaging for a group of people who are delivering against your brand every single day. As I've been thinking about kind of this idea of marketing and communication, you know, my experience as a faculty member is that I think a large chunk of our messaging and marketing is, is outward facing. And, yep. and there's probably a very good reason for that, right? You know, that's probably maybe the primary role of folks that are in a, a marketing position is to kind of tell the story externally. But right. the truth of the matter is, is that because of some of the disengagement and burnout and just the sheer disconnectedness associated with the pandemic, we've got a lot of people working in higher ed at institutions that don't feel particularly tethered to the institution anymore. Right. And all of us that work in higher education have a challenge in front of us, which is how do we rebuild those connections? And they don't have to be the same connections. We don't have to build them in the same way that they may have been built several years ago, but we've still got to think about how do we try to create a cohesive community of some sort after what we've just experienced. And so there's, I think, a place potentially there for marketing, or if not marketing, at least storytelling to play a role in that, to help us remember, this is what we're all about. This is what we do well. And not just this is what we do well so that we can tell a prospective student so that they'll come here, but as a way of celebrating the work that we do and the people who are here and helping to remind us of why we chose this place and why we stay here. Like most departments at higher ed, it's not the case that, you know, the marketing folks have like a ton of resources at their disposal and they've they've got to make hard choices just like everywhere. But again, for leaders that are thinking about, you know, how do I rebuild this community? How do I get people engaged again? There could be some real value in, in putting some resources and putting the expertise of folks in marketing towards or with an eye towards helping to remind people affiliated with the organization of why we're here. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you mentioning the word innovation before, because this, I think you're right. This is a really ripe opportunity for an institution to come out in front and say, we are being innovative and this is how we're going to work moving forward. Innovation is a word that's tossed around higher ed. I've heard it a thousand times in maybe the last year, right? Like it's just been like the top of mind for so many people. And the demonstration of that, especially in terms of the future of work on a campus, seems to not be as innovative as it could be. It's also important to keep in mind the way employees select housing, especially in large markets like LA, right? So we have like the in the Valley, that's where a lot of people who work at, you know, the state system live because it's not as expensive as other places, but the commute is so long. And so you spend most of your life in your car, stuck in traffic, spending money on very expensive gas, especially nowadays. There are other like ramifications to not embracing what the future of work is going to look like. Um, And I think those are the kinds of things that we also need to be talking about the impact on staff workforce financially, because that's a thing. That's totally a thing. Yeah, 100%. 
there are a number of different variables that, that come into play with this. It's not just should we provide people the opportunity to, you know, zoom into this meeting? Should we provide the opportunity for them to work one day a week from home? You know, people aren't just making decisions based on the work itself. They're making decisions about, as you said, you know, what's transportation costs look like? What a housing costs look, look like? How far does this salary actually go in, in this exactly. place? I've got to be honest with you, I'm not really convinced that most institutions have a great understanding of how their salaries match up to other places and other competitors. I don't know that they've got a great sense of what it actually takes to live in a particular community based on what folks are generally making. Missing that information, not having that knowledge, I think eventually is going to catch up to an organization. Oh, I totally agree. There are a number of people, myself included, who say there was a point in time historically when colleges and universities had a number of advantages as employers, you know, great benefits, a great deal of autonomy for some positions, maybe less stress during certain periods of time. A lot of those benefits just aren't there anymore. You know, the benefits aren't as great as they used to be. There is perhaps less autonomy than there once was. There is no downtime. There is no low season anymore. It feels like the pressure is just there constantly. And so given that institutions can't really bank on the idea that they've got some sort of competitive advantage against the hospital down the road or the new startup or, you know, the ed tech company that says we're going to pay you great and you can work from anywhere. And increasingly, those are our competitors. They're not, you know, the community college that's in town or the private college down the road. It's this much bigger ecosystem of largely knowledge organizations and not having a good sense of what the competition looks like can really create some problems. And I got to tell you, my students that some of my wonderful students that we have prepared to enter hired work, some of our very best, brightest students, I go on LinkedIn now and they're not working in hired anymore. They right. are working in healthcare. They are working in ed tech. And I'm, I'm glad for that. I'm glad that they've had those opportunities. I'm glad that they've been able to translate their experience so that other places see value in, in what they can provide. But it's a signal to me that higher ed doesn't realize that there is some pretty stiff competition out there. Other organizations, other companies, I think, do a much better job of thinking about and tracking how their pay looks compared to other companies and other organizations and what is necessary in order for somebody to be able to make a living and build a life in a particular place. Yeah. That last piece that you just mentioned is one that resonates with me. I've been having this conversation basically with anyone who'll listen. So I've worked in higher ed marketing for quite a while. And every time we ask a new client, who are your competitors? It is always, it is always other schools. There's, I have not once heard someone say Google or Apple or TikTok, like that is never part of the conversation. And as long as we limit our idea of competitors to other schools, we will never get ahead. Higher ed will never get ahead. So we have to look outside and come up with another message that makes clear that higher ed is, this is where work happens. This is where you create a life. This is where you can be whatever you want. And then go to the Googles, the Apples, and TikToks and serve them in a way that they could never have served, served you as a, as, a, as a staff member, an employee. 
I think that that is part of what is missing in the conversation around higher ed, how it stacks up to other industries. Yeah, you know, I don't think any of us are saying either that, you know, we need to turn our universities into Google and make companies and corporations. You know, I think we can all recognize that there's something special about our institutions. And Mm -hmm. we see that there are certainly points of distinction and things that that we want to be able to protect about an educational organization that, that sets them apart. I think we could do all those things while also saying we can make some simple updates and make sure that we are investing in our people and making sure that we don't have dead-end jobs and that there's professional development and growth opportunities. Mm -hmm. And And balance. um, And balance, right, which will allow us to be much more competitive as a knowledge organization amongst many other knowledge organizations. So, you know, I, I just, I don't think that what we're talking about here necessarily is like completely revolutionizing or changing or privatizing mm-hmm. institutions. I think what we're talking about is on some level making some updates in some cases to old policies, to being open to trying something a little bit different, to being much better about gathering data and to not take for granted that people make a choice to work at a particular place. For so long, I think Hired has just been able to lean on the idea that if we lose somebody, we can easily replace them. Right. And first of all, I, you know, I think that that's true in some places and, and true for some positions, but not others. But I'm also just tired of that. I'm tired of that as a logic for an organization. And I right. think that we can do so much better, especially as places that are supposed to be focused on learning and development we shouldn't have the mindset of, well, if we lose somebody, we just replace them without changing anything. We should be stopping and saying, we lost somebody really talented. What happened there? How do we restructure things? How do we invest differently so that doesn't happen again? Yes, yes. You made a very good clarification. I am not in any way advocating for the privatization or becoming a tech company or anything else, but understanding how they are attracting the people that we are trying to attract is going to be a very helpful piece of data in order to make better decisions. Well, and in your case, you know, you're in a space and there are multiple spaces like this within higher education in particular, where the skill set that you have is obviously transferable to lots of different places. And so 100%, you know, you all are absolutely competing against a whole slew of other types of places when it comes to attracting talent. And sometimes I feel like higher ed is kind of like, yeah, we understand, but it's like, but do you, do you understand? (laughs) I just saw actually an article about this recently at the community college level, they were trying to hire an instructor of cybersecurity. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there are some real constraints when it comes to the salaries at a public institution, for example. And so like, they just could never, they could never find somebody because the people who are in that field are like, this is not even close to what we can expect to earn. You want to be in this space. If you want to have somebody that's a professional marketer, that's a leader in this space and really creative, you can't necessarily use the same salary bands that you would use for other types of positions. That's just not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much, there's so much to think about in this space. I'm curious what you think happens next. Like, Do you imagine there being an institution that comes out and says, this is how we're going to do things and it's much different and take that risk? Or is it just too much to risk right now with all of the factors that are impacting the industry right now? Is it not 
is it not a priority? What do you what do you think is next? So I am not super optimistic that there are going to be sweeping changes. Unfortunately, I am worried that all of this momentum around well-being and balance and supporting employees is going to get passed up because of concerns around the economy and the potential for a recession and political conflicts and violence and figuring out how to maintain enrollment given the way that society is at the moment. I would say that I would love, 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 love to see the level of enthusiasm around this conversation continue and for it to lead to some real initiatives and some real changes. I already feel like it's starting to cool off a little bit, to be honest. You know, I hate that. I wish that I had a sense that we were really moving in, in a positive direction. And you know, maybe it's going to take more than just the types of conversations that we've been having on it so far. We've got to have people who are willing to lead the way and provide an example and put some real resources behind it. And there might be some places that, that are doing that and, and putting some real thought into it. I'm still looking. And even though the conversation has cooled, I haven't cooled on it yet. And I have three years ahead of me where I'm supposed to be researching this intensively and writing a book about it. Hopefully through that, we might be able to make sure that people don't lose sight of it entirely. But this topic is competing for oxygen with a lot of other really serious issues. And I can see, given the track record in higher ed, how it would be very easy for us to just move on from it. Yeah. Yeah. Before we close, I'm curious if you could run down a short list of the things that you think institutions should be thinking about when it, and thinking about the future of work. Like, what are the things that feel like new ways of doing things that might have some value in the way work looks next? We need to, I think, revolutionize the way we think about human resources to make sure that we are actually thinking strategically about talent management and human development. We need to do a much better job of analyzing workload and putting in guardrails to ensure that people are protected from the possibility of work consuming our lives. We need leaders who themselves take this seriously and have not spent so long themselves as workaholics that they view that as the norm. Accordingly, are, are willing to see a different path forward for maybe a new generation of people that, that don't have to sacrifice everything in order to, to step into leadership positions. We need to do a much better job of collecting data on workplace culture and acting on that data. Those are some of the things that I have brought up in the past and will continue to bring up and ideas that I'll hopefully continue to, to develop in, in ways that are more concrete. I remain convinced, despite my pessimism around kind of where this conversation is going, that this is actually something that we have within our capacity, within our expertise. We have the ability to make some real change in this area. This isn't the type of problem that I think is something that we can't fix. Right. I would agree. Kevin McClure, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Higher Voltage. I really appreciate you taking the time. Like I mentioned, we'll have a number of Kevin's articles on our episode page for folks who might be interested in reviewing those. Thank you so much.
Yeah, no, it's been it's been fun. We should do it again. We likely will. <laughs> Depending on what happens next. <laughs> awesome. That's it for this week's episode of Higher Voltage. We'll be back soon with a new episode. And until then, you can find us on Twitter at Volt Higher Ed. And you can find me, Kevin Tyler, on Twitter at Kevin C. Tyler 2.